again, this is one one example of why I believe the next 18 months are going to be a bumpy ride. Oh, you think? I think she's right. That's Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. She would know. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. It's going to be really bumpy. I got the feeling there's something right. For her. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And all the other secretaries of state. I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Buckle up. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio, and WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. And yes, we stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet. It's on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us. Yes, we are back, and we are back in L.A., baby, after some time off over the holidays. Uh, and and some programs done from an entirely different state while we were fleeing some major construction. <laughs> which is still ongoing. Still ongoing. A new roof on the building which houses our home studio. Unfortunately, to the surprise of almost no one, that work is taking longer than we were told. <laughs> so if you hear some hammering or workmen shouting to each other this week during the broadcast, don't worry. That's us, not you. Apologies in advance. <laughs> yeah. uh, also, we're not back for two seconds, Desi Doyen, before we're already hit with breaking news during the opening of the show. Enrique Tario, the former chair of the far-right Proud Boys, was sentenced to 22 years in federal prison just uh, on uh, Tuesday afternoon following his conviction on a seditious conspiracy charge. In connection with the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, that is the longest sentence so far in a January 6th case. And, well, if he got 22 years, shouldn't the guy who ran the entire insurrection get at least that much in jail? Just asking for a few hundred million friends. <laughs> uh, Tario um, was one of four Proud Boys found guilty of seditious conspiracy back in May. Uh, let's see. Joe Biggs was sentenced to 17 years. Zach Rail to 15 years. Ethan Nordine to 18 years. But uh, the longest one yet is Enrico Enrique Tario, surpassing the 18 years given to Oath Keepers founder and one-time broadcast guest mm -hmm. Stuart Rhodes, who was also convicted of seditious conspiracy. So. 
We're already running behind, Des, uh, with breaking <laughs> news. Uh, Desi Doyen, of course, is back with us. Yes, Hello, it's Desiree. hard to keep up with all the breaking news. It doesn't tend to stop for us. No, and uh, and and actually, we sort of jump in largely where we left off before the holiday with the uh, many ongoing attempts at accountability for our four-time criminally indicted former president, as he continues nonetheless to be the Republican Party's front runner for the 2024 presidential nomination, and as the campaign. For 2024 now kicks off in earnest following the uh, following Labor Day with his party continuing their blatant efforts at flouting the rule of law and the U.S. Constitution itself. I'll get to that in a second. I've been I've been holding on to some thoughts in the meantime, uh, a feeling of mine, if you will, Uh, which I've I've referred to once or twice on the show in recent weeks and months uh, regarding whether Donald Trump will actually become the GOP nominee after all next year, come November. That, uh, despite his commanding lead in polling right now at the moment among Republican primary voters, I'll get to some news regarding that feeling of mine shortly. And as I noted, Desi Doyen is back uh, with her latest Green News report later this hour. Some things happened. Now that summer is officially over and all the climate nightmares (laughs) of the last several months are well behind us. Oh, I wish. Nothing to worry about. Uh, Yep. Uh, But as to the uh, GOP just out and out flouting the rule of law and the U.S. Constitution at this point, we've got some... Uh, We will call it good news on that front to kick things off today. A three-judge panel of federal judges on Tuesday declared that they will draft new congressional lines for Alabama after state lawmakers there refused to create a second district where black voters might at least come close to comprising a majority as ordered earlier this year by the U.S. Supreme Court, only to see that order blatantly ignored by GOP state legislators and the uh, Republican governor in Alabama. You may recall in early June this year, near the end of their uh, previous term, the U.S. Supreme Court sort of stunned everyone by not using that opportunity granted them in a case called Allen v. Milligan to kill Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which bars, among other things, bars racial gerrymandering. It was a a huge and it was a frankly surprising victory for voting rights advocates, given how corrupt the stolen and packed far right majority has become at the high court. It's a sign of how bad and how egregious the gerrymandering was in Alabama that even the supermajority on the right wing Supreme uh, yeah. Court was a was unable to just to put up with that. Correct. Even uh, J- Chief Justice John Roberts, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, both joined with the three liberal justices on the court in a five to four majority to block Alabama's blatant scheme to prevent the second majority minority district in the state, upholding at the time a lower court ruling, which included two Trump appointees, by the way, who had ordered that second black majority district after uh, the uh, new maps were drawn following the 2020 census. Well, rather than following the mandate of the U.S. Supreme Court, Alabama lawmakers simply drew up a new map that was, again, in violation of the Voting Rights Act and the U.S. Constitution and uh, the three-judge lower court panel on Monday 
wrote that they were, quote, deeply troubled that Alabama lawmakers flouted their instruction to create a second majority black district or something close to it by the U.S. Supreme Court. So now a designated special master will be tapped to draw new U.S. House districts in Alabama, according to the judge's order. Former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder, the chair of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, which backed one of the court challenges leading to the decision, said, quote, this is a significant step for a step toward equal representation for black Alabamians. The three judge panel in striking down Alabama's map back in 2022 said the state where, by the way, 27 percent of residents are black and yet they have only one of seven House districts with a majority of black voters or anything close to it. So the three judge panel last year said that the state should have two districts where black voters have an opportunity to elect their preferred candidates. The U.S. Supreme Court agreed. Uh, And nonetheless, Alabama lawmakers in July passed a new map that maintained a single majority black district. Quote, we are disturbed, the judges wrote in their ruling rejecting the state's new map that the state, quote, did not even nurture the ambition to provide the required remedy. They continued, we are not aware of any other case in which a state legislature faced with a federal court order declaring that its electoral plan unlawfully dilutes minority uh, votes and requiring a plan that provides an additional opportunity, responded with a plan that the state concedes does not provide that district. They just flouted what they were told by the U.S. Supreme Court. But this is the new lawless, autocratic, far-right Republican movement now in this country that I continue to warn, uh, continue to warn you about as we roll towards the 2024 elections. Uh, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing, but this is where we are. This is how Republicans across the country are now thumbing their nose at the rule of law and at the U.S. Constitution itself. This is why I've been warning about the choice that we are now facing in American elections. Democracy and autocracy. Those are the choices, which, by the way, one of our listeners uh, continues to chide me via email to bradcast at bradblog.com. He he says that uh, autocracy, well, that the battle is better described as democracy versus fascism, that people understand fascism better than autocracy. I don't know. Take your pick. But pay attention. This is where we are going. And at least in this case, the courts are still holding for now. But Alabama is hardly the only such state trying to do exactly this. Ron DeSantis's Florida attempted successfully to do the very same thing last year in the Sunshine State. And as in Alabama, he got away with it, at least for one election cycle, leading to the Republicans' slim current majority in the U.S. House. But as of this weekend, that that, uh, flaunting of the rule of law and the U.S. Constitution has also received some noteworthy pushback from a judge in Florida. A state judge on Saturday struck down North Florida's congressional districts, rebuffing 
Governor Ron DeSantis's open defiance of anti-gerrymandering protections in the state's constitution, finding that the governor's map illegally and, yes, unconstitutionally reduced black voters' electoral power. DeSantis had argued that the state's mandatory protections for black voters violated the U.S. Constitution's Equal Protections Clause as he ordered the state legislature to kill a black-majority U.S. House district in the state that had been protected under the state's Fair Districts Amendment to its Constitution. So, you know, unilaterally, DeSantis declared that his own state constitution was unconstitutional Hmm. when it came to the U.S. Constitution. He was wrong, at least according to the judge on Saturday. The state's far-right legislature had not hadn't even drawn this, killed this district themselves. It was DeSantis uh, who ordered the state legislature to kill a black majority U.S. House district in the state that had been protected. The far right legislature wouldn't do it. And DeSantis literally ordered them to do so. He literally drew up the map himself and essentially forced the state legislature to pass it. On Saturday, Florida's Circuit Judge J. Lee Marsh rejected that gambit, uh, which, as I said, it worked well enough for one U.S. House election last year. But that, of course, is what's wrong with the U.S. Supreme Court having effectively gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which would have prevented something like this from happening before it happened. Now, of course, uh, this judge, the state judge, is ordering that a new map be redrawn in Florida, where uh, there is more than uh, the population is more than 22 million. Seventeen percent of them are black. But under the uh, new maps, an area stretching about 360 miles from the Alabama border to the Atlantic Ocean and south from the Georgia border to Orlando and central Florida is currently only represented by white members of Congress. Judge Marsh, for now anyway, refused to bite on DeSantis's claim that his uh, that the state's fair districts amendment was violated the U.S. Constitution. But that is what is going on now. They're going to no doubt DeSantis will take this to the uh, to the uh, state Supreme Court where he has personally handpicked a majority of that court. So we'll we'll see how long this holds. But that's what we're facing. This autocracy or fascism, take your pick. This is what it looks like. And you don't have to be a Democrat to want to vote against that rising authoritarian tide. Now, at least for today, at least for the moment, the federal court system in Alabama and the state court system in Florida is holding holding up against GOP authoritarianism. We'll see how long it does But speaking of that, of GOP authoritarianism or fascism, whatever you'd like to call it, and the long battle that we need to wage against it, well, that feeling I mentioned about next year's Republican presidential ballot that I've been trying to get to for weeks, I will finally do so. That's next on today's Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. (laughs) 
The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I can't. I just, Desi Doyne, I cannot fight this feeling anymore. Yes, I know. It is not a prediction. It is not a pronouncement. It may not even be news, really, in the strictest sense. But it is a feeling. A feeling that I've had and I continue to have and I just can't fight anymore, uh, as I've shared from time to time in bits and pieces on uh, on this program. So, like I say, not a prediction, but a feeling that for all the focus on the notion that Donald Trump will be running for president in November of 2024, there is a long way to go before we get there. Now, he may be uh, he may be running. He may be on the ballot. He may win the nomination, all of that stuff. But there's a long way to go before we get there. And uh, the feeling and it is no more than that, that Donald Trump uh, very well may not be on the ballot at all by then. Well, I just can't seem to let it go, as <laughs> as you well know, Des. Oh, yes. Uh, there are a whole bunch of reasons for that, for that feeling of mine, which I keep being reminded about uh, via various stories I see in the media, some of which get attention, others which don't. Now, in the leaks, uh, weeks leading up to our, uh, our holiday break, I had been trying and trying to get to some of those stories, but I kept getting sidetracked with various indictments and hurricanes and wildfires and debates. <laughs> well, and, there have been a few. Yes. And yes, I realize that uh, some of our guests, like Digby and Keith Barber and Drift Glass of late, they continue to poo-poo the idea that Trump may not actually win the GOP nomination next year and they may be right but there is a long way to go before we get there and as the uh, as the song says i just can't fight this feeling <laughs> so let me let me touch base on a few of these points we'll just can let to let you get it out of your system thank you Thank you, because it's been driving me crazy. So just to lay down, uh, you know, this marker as as more such stories seem to be showing up every day these days. Let me let me start here. Nearly two out of three Americans, according to one survey last month, said that they would probably or definitely not support former President Donald Trump ahead of the 2024 race for the White House. Two out of three Americans. The poll, which was conducted by the AP, found that 53% of Americans say they would definitely not support Trump if he is the Republican nominee next year, and 11% say they probably would not support him in November of 2024. So that's 64% of Americans who will either definitely or probably vote against Trump if he is on the ballot next year in November, at least according to this this one new poll about uh, of about 1,100 adults from uh, August 10 through August 14. So th- that was before the sprawling Georgia RICO indictments even came out last month. 
But the disgraced former president's criminal charges may not be affecting his grip on Republican voters during the 2024 primaries, says uh, USA Today. Unless, of course, maybe they end up hearing about polls like these and they begin to have second thoughts about what they are doing in nominating this guy. There are now uh, substantive signs they will, at this point, uh, be giving this idea a second thought, at least according to polling. About 63% of Republicans in that same poll said that they want Trump to run in 2024, and 74% of Republicans said they would back Trump in November of 2024. But still, that comes out to 37% of Republicans, people who still call themselves members of the Republican Party, who do not want Trump to run, and 26% who suggest they may not vote for him if he does run next November. Again, while there's no huge signs among the GOP primary electorate that they are turning on this guy just yet, there are certainly some among the establishment who are wondering if nominating Donald Trump is a good idea given some of these numbers. Sarah Longwell, an anti-Trump Republican strategist, told the AP that there, quote, is a meaningful number of voters who have voted for Trump twice and can't vote for him again after all of this. There are also top GOP lawmakers who are beginning to go on record with similar sentiments, like Louisiana's Republican Senator Bill Cassidy, who around the same time as this AP Uh, AP poll came out, he was asked on CNN if he thought Trump should drop out of the 2024 Republican primary. And here's what he said. Do you think that Donald Trump should drop out of the race? Uh, I think so. But obviously, that's up to him. I mean, you're just asking my opinion, but but he will lose to Joe Biden if you look at the current polls. Now, I, I don't know if Senator Cassidy is right about that. But he did go on to say that he would vote for a Republican even if Trump is nominated while claiming that any of the other Republicans running would have a better chance than Trump at beating Joe Biden, whose policies he described as disastrous. So this is not some lefty or even a, you know, a never-Trumper per se, even if Cassidy was one of the seven GOP senator, uh, senators who did vote to convict Donald Trump in his second impeachment trial for inciting the January 6th insurrection. He also described the stolen documents case against Trump as, quote, almost a slam dunk and, quote, a very strong case. And yet he says he will vote for a Republican next year, whether that Republican is Trump. Well, that remains to be seen. That federal case, I should note, by the way. Uh, about the do- on, on the uh, on the documents, I, I, well, I I've lost track, but I think this is uh, <laughs> uh, this going to go on trial right before it's going to begin on May twentieth of next year. That's the documents trial. That is still long before the mid July Republican National Convention in Milwaukee, when the party will either certify or not certify Trump's nomination to run next November, presuming he wins. So there's a lot of trials. In between here and the time the nomination is officially confirmed, 
next year in July. But Trump will face at least one other federal criminal trial by then if the March 4, 2024 date in his federal indictment for attempting to steal the 2020 election, if that remains on schedule, that would be March 4. That would be one day before Super Tuesday's primary contest in about a dozen states next year. Will this have an effect on how Republican voters vote? I think it might. But okay, for the moment, despite all of his legal troubles, Trump does remain the GOP frontrunner for the Republican Party for now, with about 53 percent of support in the crowded field of GOP candidates, about 53 percent in pretty much all of the polls, according to the latest polling average from Real Clear Politics. Then again, that also means that nearly 50 percent of the GOP primary electorate supports someone else at this time. So you see why I have this nagging feeling but there is of course <laughs> more cassidy's remarks came just before the first gop primary debate in milwaukee last month which trump was too chicken to participate in and right around that same time republicans began noticing what we have been discussing on this show for about two years now uh, and that is the U.S. Constitution's disqualification clause that pretty clearly states that someone like Donald Trump, who previously having taken the oath of office to protect and defend the Constitution and then participating in an insurrection against the U.S. government in hopes of overthrowing it, that someone like him is, in fact, disqualified from holding federal office, period. According to the U.S. Constitution, if you bother to believe in such things. One of the uh, one of the first on the Republican side to ad uh, to admit, at least to noticing this provision of the Constitution was long shot, never Trumper Republican candidate for president and former Arkansas governor Asa Hutchinson on CNN. Uh, Hutchinson alluded to the provision, uh, Section 3 of the Constitution's 14th Amendment, just before the debate in Milwaukee when asked if he, as required by the Republican primary debate rules, would in fact agree to support whoever eventually won the nomination, even if it was Donald Trump. I'm not even sure he's qualified uh, to be uh, the next president of the United States. Uh, and so you can't be asking us to support somebody that's not uh, e perhaps even qualified under our Constitution. And I'm referring to the 14th Amendment that a number of legal scholars said that he is disqualified because of his actions on January 6th. Now, of course, uh, we here at the broadcast, uh, as your early warning system, as Desi <laughs> likes to describe us, oh, yeah. uh, we've been discussing the 14.3, the third section of the 14th Amendment, uh, the disqualification clause of the U.S. Constitution for almost two years now. And happily, Republicans are now just beginning to notice it as well, thanks to uh, these legal scholars that Hutchinson was referring to there. Those are Republican, Republican legal scholars and, frankly, far right legal scholars, members, in fact, of the far-right Federalist Society, who just before Hutchinson's remarks to CNN had actually released a 126-page legal arg article uh, for, for a law review. As reported by Alternet at the time, two leading, highly credentialed, conservative 
constitutional law professors say that the U.S. Constitution already, quote, disqualifies former President Donald Trump from holding office, including being president because of his, quote, participation in the attempted overthrow of the 2020 presidential election. And again, these are not just any highly credentialed conservative constitutional law professors. These are longstanding members of the far-right Federalist Society. Hello? Anybody paying attention? In their 126-page uh, 126, 126 University of Pennsylvania Law Review paper, University of Chicago Law School professor William Bowd and University of St. Thomas School of Law professor Michael Stokes Paulson introduced their work by writing about the post-Civil War era constitutional amendment that we've been reporting on now for a long time on this show, pretty much ever since January 6th of 2021. Uh, they write, the pair writes, quote, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment forbids holding office by former office holders who then participate in insurrection or rebellion because of a range of misperceptions and mistaken assumptions, they write Section 3's full legal consequences have not been appreciated or enforced. They write that this article corrects those mistakes by setting forth the full sweep and full force of Section 3. Pushing back against claims made previously by others in defense of a second Trump presidential term, the uh, pair write that, quote, Section 3 remains an enforceable part of the Constitution. It is not limited to the Civil War, and it is not repealed by 19th century amnesty legislation for some Confederate soldiers. They say Congress needs to do nothing to implement Trump's, quote, immediate disqualification from office. They write Section 3 is self-executing, and as constitutional law attorneys, they have argued, uh, as constitutional uh, uh, attorneys have argued on this show, uh, the uh, Section 3 is operating as an immediate disqualification from office without the need for additional action by Congress. It can and should, they write, be enforced by every official, state or federal who judges qualifications. In fact, our friends at freespeechforpeople.org have recently written to the secretaries of state or chief election officials in all 50 states to explain 14.3 to them and the Constitution's mandate that they find Donald Trump does not have the constitutional qualifications to be on the 2024 ballot. They argue free speech for people, that it is no different from the constitutional requirement, for example, that the president be 35 years of age or older, and that secretaries of state have the mandate to determine ballot qualifications regarding things like age and citizenship, and yes, whether a candidate is disqualified based on violation of, the section, of uh, section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The conservative law professors agree and they add that Section 3, quote, disqualifies former President Donald Trump and potentially many others because of their participation in the attempted overthrow of the 2020 presidential election, unquote. The article's conclusion reads, quote, Donald Trump cannot be president, cannot run for president, cannot become 
president cannot hold office unless two-thirds of Congress decides to grant him amnesty for his conduct on January 6th. The New York Times, which first reported on the new law article, uh, notes that both professors, quote, are active members of the Federalist Society, the conservative legal group, and proponents of originalism, the method of interpretation that seeks to determine the Constitution's original meaning from, you know, its actual text, the words that it says. The Times adds that Stephen Calabresi, a law professor at Northwestern and Yale and a founder of the Federalist Society, called the article, quote, a tour de force. Quote, Trump is ineligible to be on the ballot, Professor Calabresi told the, uh, the New York Times, and each of the 50 secretaries of state has an obligation to print ballots without his name on them. Calabresi also said that they may be sued, of course, for refusing to do so. Also, in response to uh, their article, the uh, former U.S. appeals court judge, Michael Ludwig, the far right, most cited judge by the Supreme Court, considered by Republican presidents going all the way back to Ronald Reagan for a seat on the high court. He also praised the article. He says it, quote, promises to be of monumental and historic if not also contemporary, uh, contemporary importance to constitutional law. The very conservative Judge Ludwig joined with Harvard Law's renowned liberal constitutional law professor, Lawrence Tribe, to laud the article in their own op-ed, praising the law review piece and reiterating their belief that Trump is ineligible to be on the 2024 ballot. They wrote for The Atlantic last month that Trump's actions following his 2020 electoral loss, quote, place him squarely within the ambit of the Constitution's disqualification clause. Well, that's a five dollar word right there. Right there within the ambit. All right. So what now? Well, now it will be up to those secretaries of state or other chief election officials to decide if, in fact, they will violate the U.S. Constitution by allowing someone who is ineligible for the office to be on the ballot for that office. USA Today reported last week that questions over whether Trump is legally eligible to run for president again have started to pick up steam in New Hampshire, where Republicans have been quarreling, Republicans have been quarreling over the possibility that the former president would be left off of the state's 2024 primary ballot in New Hampshire, the first primary state. New Hampshire's Republican Secretary of State David Scanlon has requested legal guidance from the New Hampshire Attorney General's office, which is, quote, carefully reviewing the legal issues involved. Scanlon and Attorney General John Formella uh, announced as much in a joint statement last week. But the officials clarified that they have not yet taken any position on whether the former president and current GOP frontrunner will, in fact, be on the ballot in New Hampshire. Attorney uh, Brian, uh, Bryant Corky Messner, who was the GOP nominee for the New Hampshire U.S. Senate race in 2020, called the theory, quote, very compelling. 
He predicted uh, Scanlon will be, quote, in a difficult position over the seemingly narrow legal question that could have major ramifications for the 2024 Republican primary. So somebody is going to do this. Someone is going to disqualify this guy in a state. And, of course, I suspect that means it's going to get very quickly to the U.S. Supreme Court. One would think, yes. Messner said that the Law Review article, quote, really ignited me to essentially become an advocate for the Constitution. Well, that's nice to hear, isn't it? <laughs> True. The goal, Mesner said, is not to disqualify Trump from the ballot, but to have the Supreme Court decide on his eligibility. If New Hampshire officials decide to allow Trump to appear on the ballot, Mesner said, he would partly finance a lawsuit challenging that and suggested proponents of the theory would sue in other states as well. He said, I think this ought to be nonpartisan and it ought to be a focus on what the Constitution says. And I agree with the uh, former uh, Senate candidate, Messner, Republican Senate candidate. New Hampshire, of course, is hardly the only state where secretaries of state are now grappling with this very question. In Arizona, newly elected Democratic Secretary of State Adrian Fontes, who was a guest on this show some years ago, back when he was uh, Maricopa County's recorder in Arizona. I hope to have him back on uh, again as Secretary of State. He told the Arizona Republic's The Gaggle podcast last week that he does not have the authority as Secretary of State in Arizona right now to bar Donald Trump from the Arizona ballot next year. But that, he says, is only thanks to a ruling in 2022 by the state's Supreme Court, which he categorizes as, quote, stupid, saying it makes no sense. And he appears to be willing, uh, welcoming a lawsuit in order to have another judicial bite at that apple, so to speak, after they uh, rejected challenges to three to the eligibility of three candidates in last year's midterm elections, three who had participated in the January 6th insurrection. There are some arguments coming from constitutional scholars on whether Trump should be qualified for the ballot based on 14th Amendment concerns. Would you qualify Trump for the ballot? Well, the state of the law in Arizona right now, there was a case that went to the Arizona Supreme Court last year, as you may recall, where the qualification under the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which is the same one you're asking about for the president, Congressman Biggs, Congressman Gosar, and Mark Fincham were challenged in that case, if you recall. Now, the Arizona Supreme Court said that because there's no statutory process in federal law to enforce Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, you can't enforce it. Right. That's what the Arizona Supreme Court said. So that's the state of the law in Arizona. Now, do I agree with that? No, that's stupid. I mean, if there's no statutory scheme to enforce whether or not you're a natural born citizen, does someone born in Czechoslovakia get to run for president in Arizona? If somebody's 25 years old, I mean, there's no statutory scheme created in law to enforce the age restriction. Does a 25 year old get to be on the ballot in Arizona for president? According to the logic of the Arizona Supreme Court, they do. So the Arizona Supreme Court was dead flat wrong when they decided as a legal question that because that Section 3 doesn't have an enforcement mechanism, you can't enforce it. That's wrong. What is the actual answer? They never answered it. They avoided it. It was politically convenient for a very conservative Arizona Supreme Court. It was politically convenient for them to pitch it forward. But that's the state of the law in Arizona. 
So are you saying that your hands are tied when it comes to qualifying candidates for the ballot? What I'm, what I'm saying is I'm going to follow the law. And the law in Arizona is what the law in Arizona is. Whether I like it or not is irrelevant. That having been said, can the Arizona Supreme Court be overturned if somebody brings a lawsuit? Well, any law can be overturned in a judicial action. Now, I'm not inviting someone to sue me, <laughs> uh, although it probably mm-hmm. will end up happening. But yeah. as you indicated, there's a lot of voices out there. Many of the loudest ones from the political right are saying that Mr. Trump is not qualified under Section 3. And in that article that you speak to, uh, the law review article written by those folks, I understand. I haven't read the whole thing yet. I haven't gotten to the end. But the New York Times reported out that it basically says that if we qualify Mr. Trump, we're going to get sued. And if we don't qualify Mr. Trump, we're going to get sued. Mm-hmm. Now, my crystal ball has run out of batteries. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. But what I can say is this. Um, I know what the state of the law is in Arizona. And we'll just have to see if Mr. Trump submits a, a request. Because as far as we can tell, the request time period has not yet opened. So we don't know that anybody is officially running for president in Arizona until about the middle of November. Mm-hmm. Wow. Talk about uncharted territory. Middle of November. We won't yeah. even know until the middle of November. Wow. Uh, and uh, Adrian Fontes there, the, uh, dem- the new newly elected Democratic Secretary of State of Arizona, saying that the Arizona Supreme Court was dead flat wrong in making a stupid decision that the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment could not be enforced. And obviously, even though he says he's asking, he doesn't want to be sued. Yeah, he wants to be sued because he wants this to go back to the uh, to the state Supreme Court and then, of course, to the U.S. Supreme Court. Maine's Democratic Secretary of State, Shenna Bellows. She was on Chris Hayes's MSNBC program on Friday to discuss this very same matter, she confirmed that, yes, it is her job to determine if candidates meet the eligibility requirements and that, yes, she would not be able to allow someone on the ballot who was, say, 22 years old or a citizen of another country. Seems sort of obvious. Someone who is not a natural-born U.S. citizen cannot run for president. And to that end, the 14th Amendment, she said, is also something that her office will likely now have to grapple with for 2024. It's important for voters to know none of us are making up the laws and the processes. Those already exist. In Maine, ballot access for every candidate, including presidential candidates, is governed by Title 21A. Presidential candidates have to submit their nomination papers by December 1st. There is a period after that in which uh, challenges to any candidate are permissible in accordance with that law. Uh, hearings are then held by the Secretary of State and then a determination made, which, of course, is appealable to court. That's Maine's procedure. It's different in every state. And that's right. those lines and those circumstances and the facts that are presented to us. So we're being very careful not to engage in conjecture or speculation about a particular candidate. We'll make those evaluations when they're properly presented to us. How do you conceive of your constitutional duty with respect to the 14th Amendment, Section 3, in the abstract? I swore an oath to uphold the Constitution, including the 14th Amendment, and all aspects of the Maine Constitution and the United States Constitution, as well as the laws of our state and our nation. So we'll be looking at that 
comprehensively, carefully, and dispassionately with advice from my Office of Attorney General, Attorney General Aaron Fry. And that's really important process under the law. And I think that's the most important lesson here is that legal scholars may debate what might happen. Our job is to fulfill the obligation under the rule of law. And that's it. And that's it. That's uh, Maine's Democratic Secretary of State, Shenna Bellows, uh, who says that she, too, her office uh, and the, the attorney general's office in Maine will be looking at this very question very soon as uh, applications are made to officially be placed onto the ballot in states like Maine, like Arizona. Now, Talking Points Memo reached out to a number of secretaries of state and election boards for what they describe uh, people who are likely to to in in some of the swingiest states next year, as they describe it, including states that Trump attempted to steal in 2020. The result, they note, is currently a mixed bag. At least one secretary of state that would be in Ohio. That would be the hypocritical, dishonest, far right Frank LaRose, who is himself running for the GOP nomination for U.S. Senate in Ohio next Mm. year. Uh, He dismissed the effort as a, a, quote, fringe legal theory, which, of course, it isn't. It may be infrequently used, but it is not fringe. It is what the Constitution actually literally says. Just as by way of reminder to those Republicans who like to pretend they are textualist originalists. They believe in what the words actually say on the page in the Constitution by the framers. But others, like New Mexico's Secretary of State, while they expressed some guarded enthusiasm for the idea, quote, we are aware of and are reviewing the legal theories regarding the 14th Amendment that conclude Donald Trump is ineligible to run for president. That, according to a spokesperson for the for uh, New Mexico's Democratic Secretary of State, Maggie Toulouse Oliver. Quote, if Donald Trump files in New Mexico to run for president, we will make a determination at that time based on our understanding of New Mexico law and the requirements to run for office in New Mexico. Any determination about a specific candidate's eligibility for the ballot will be made after the candidate filing day in February of 2024. As the legal theory gains traction, it's apparently become a big topic of conversation amongst all of these officials who may have to decide whether or not to give it any credence. Oh, I'm sure it has. According to Democratic Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson in the critical battleground state of Michigan, she, along with her colleagues, both Republican and Democratic, are now said to be doing exactly that, as uh, she told the Michigan Information and Research Services podcast last week. So so to be clear, Secretary, is it possible that Donald Trump won't make our prime presidential primary ballot because of these legal issues? Is that a possibility? I would say there are there are there are valid legal arguments being made to that effect, but it's far too soon to really assess the likelihood of that. But it's something that um, not just in our state, but colleagues in every state. I mean, the secretaries of state of multiple states are having conversations about just that. Um, Democrats and Republicans with, again, the clarity that we want to know what the law is and make a decision rooted in that, not in politics. 
So I'm talking with folks in Pennsylvania, with Secretary of States in Nevada, and even in Maine, um, people who are in Georgia, of course, my colleague Brad Raffensperger, just to kind of get a sense of of what the facts are, what the evidence is, what the timeline is. And um, but knowing there has been now and there likely will be an ongoing legal question about the uh, former president's eligibility to be on the ballot rooted in the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. So it's, you know, stay tuned. It, but again, this is one one example of why I believe the next 18 months are going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> oh, my goodness. A bumpy ride. I do not envy uh-huh. any of uh, any of these all 50 secretaries yeah. of state, both Republican and Democrat. I don't envy that they have to make this decision coming up. It's going to be a really difficult one, a historic one. And God knows what's going to happen afterwards. A bumpy ride. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> uh, that's Jocelyn Benson, the uh, the Democratic secretary of state of Michigan. And again, as noted, I am not predicting anything. I don't do predictions. But I do have this feeling that, you know, I I can't fight anymore. And it's harder and harder to fight when you hear actual secretaries of state coming out and saying, yeah, we will follow the law and the Constitution. And if you read the law and you read the Constitution, it's all pretty clear. Now, when and if they follow the law and the Constitution, if the U.S. Supreme Court, the corrupted, packed, stolen U.S. Supreme Court, decides to follow the law and the Constitution, that remains a very open question. We will see. But I have this feeling that for these reasons and, frankly, many others uh, that I'm sure we will be covering in the days ahead, the certainty by some that Donald Trump will absolutely be on the ballot next year, come November... Well, I think it isn't quite as cut and dry as some seem to think right now. We'll see. It's just a feeling. Stay tuned. The Green News Report is next. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Yeah. You know, we're not even back one day, and I'm already running late. I know. Imagine that. Imagine that. <laughs> I blame Enrico to Enrique Tario. Anyway. Dude, indeed. Let's get to it. Desi's back with our latest Green News Report. And now the storm has passed, and you're dealing with what's left in its wake. Your nation has your back, 
and we'll be with you until the job is done. President Biden in disaster-stricken Florida calls on Congress to act after summer of climate disasters. I think I could be trapped here for a couple more days. Nevada's Burning Man becomes newest victim of climate extremes, plus... Fossil fuels are a requirement for human prosperity. Drill, frack, burn coal, embrace nuclear. 2024 presidential campaign kicks off with more denial and more delay. And less DeSantis. All of those stories and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Nobody can deny the impact of climate crisis. Um, There's nobody intelligent can deny the impact of a climate crisis anymore. That's better. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, well, it looks like the climate denial does continue even after an insane summer. We're now officially in fall. Everything should be fine now, right? (laughs) No, unfortunately, it won't be because the summer of extremes is just as extreme and getting extremier. Uh Uh-oh. Two historic hurricanes hit the U.S. on both coasts while we were out, and new record-shattering extreme heat waves hit around the world. First, a follow-up in the historic West Coast landfall of Hurricane Hillary, which rapidly intensified over unusually warm Pacific Ocean waters. New damage estimates now top $10 dollars across the West, and officials in Death Valley National Park have closed the park indefinitely due to extensive flood damage from Hillary. Really? On the East Coast, just a few days later, Hurricane Idalia also rapidly intensified, also fueled by record hot ocean waters in the Gulf of Mexico. It hit as a powerful Category 3 in the Big Bend region of Florida that hadn't seen a landfalling hurricane in more than a century. Idalia wrought havoc from Florida to the Carolinas and is now on track to become 2023's costliest single climate disaster for the U.S., with preliminary estimates of loss and damage at 10 to $20 billion, further straining Florida's rickety property insurance industry. And if my math is right, we've still got two more months of storm season? Actually, three. Three! I'm sure it'll be fine. The record hot waters in the Gulf of Mexico also generated extreme heat, with Gulf Coast cities like New Orleans and Houston recording new all-time high hottest temperatures. And yes, human-caused climate change is clearly connected to these record high ocean temperatures and the rapid intensification of storms. It's not just down in Florida and New Orleans. It's like 90 degrees up in Minnesota today. Yep, and the U.S. Gulf Coast has now seen an unprecedented eight major hurricanes Hurricane landfalls in just the last seven years. Uh, Did I say I'm sure it'll be fine? In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis, a 2024 Republican presidential candidate, declined to meet with President Biden on a routine tour of the damage. Over the weekend, Biden continued without DeSantis, promising ongoing federal support for Florida. And we're not going anywhere, the federal government. We're here to help the state as long as it takes. Anything they need related to these storms. Biden on Monday also called on Congress to boost funding for FEMA's disaster assistance programs, which are already running out of money, as happens nearly every year now, due to accelerating frequency and magnitude of extreme weather disasters that now hit the U.S. every three weeks or so. Weird. I wonder why. 
Speaking of politics, while we were out, Republican 2024 presidential candidates doubled down on climate science denial and delay in their first debate. DeSantis and the others wouldn't say whether they accept mainstream climate science, that climate change is caused by humans burning fossil fuels, but fast-talking entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy outright called climate change a hoax. I'm the only person on the stage who isn't bought and paid for, so I can say this. The climate change agenda is a hoax. And of course, now new reporting reveals that Ramaswamy has at least $50 million invested in a fund dedicated to drilling as much climate warming fossil fuels as possible. If anyone knows hoaxes, it's Vivek Ramaswamy. Finally, more unprecedented extreme weather hitting in unexpected places also caused chaos at the Burning Man Festival in Nevada. A climate protest at the start of the event caused an hours-long traffic jam, and then an unusual torrential storm turned the desert into treacherous mud, trapping tens of thousands of people amid overflowing latrines and shortages of food and water. One death at the festival is under investigation, and this latest disaster demonstrates once again that climate change intensified extreme weather events can strike everywhere at any time. Well, they went to the desert knowing it'd be about 115 degrees, so maybe this was nice. For much more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and sites still known as Twitter at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Yeah, the people of Burning Man said they were fine with what happened, that they all had a good time. Well, I hope that they did, Um, but I will say we have a little update. Um, Tropical Storm Lee is Uh brewing in the Atlantic, is going Uh to become a major hurricane. It may or may not hit the U.S. It's too far out to know, but I just want people to... Where's it going to hit? We don't know yet. It's too far out. Florida? New England? We don't know yet. It's too far out. North Carolina? So people along the East Coast really ought to keep an eye out and don't turn your back on this one. It's going to be a monster. Everyone on the East Coast... Keep Be careful. Eye. That's yes. right. All right. Thank you very much, Desi Doyle. And thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other that we've ever done, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is thanks to those of you kind enough to support our work by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Drop me an email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com and on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and sites still known as Twitter, I am the Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here next time. Hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1882. That was the day the first Labor Day parade took place in New York City. But whose idea was it? According to the late Jonathan Grossman, former historian at the Department of Labor, the first Labor Day occurred during a general uptick in working class organizing, strike activity, and militancy that year. 
Peter McGuire, Carpenters Union General Secretary, is often credited as the father of Labor Day. But others assert that Knights of Labor machinist and New York City's Central Labor Union leader, Matthew McGuire, was the force behind the holiday. The machinist McGuire had been active in the eight-hour movement and later as a Socialist Labor Party politician. By the end of the decade, 400 cities nationwide celebrated the first Monday of September as, quote, a general holiday for the working man. It was already an official holiday in most states when the labor movement started campaigning for a day of recognition at the federal level. Labor militants contend that by 1894, the holiday was promoted for its respectability against the more radical May Day. Another unanswered question remains regarding President Cleveland's motives for signing the federal legislation. The widely accepted view is that Cleveland hoped to win back labor's vote after federal troops crushed the 1894 Pullman strike in early August. But the president signed the legislation much earlier on June 28th. The nationwide boycott against Pullman cars, called by Eugene B. Debs and the American Railway Union, had just begun two days earlier. Did he hope to deflate the boycott? What do you think? For many in the Chicago labor movement, the fact that both Labor Day and May Day are linked to the city's history is a source of pride. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com.